You're listening to the SPE Podcast. I'm Paige McCowan, and we're talking about how current technology can help us through this downturn with... Duncan Blue. Welcome, everybody. And Duncan, thank you for your time for joining us today to talk. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I enjoy these kind of things, and, and I think it's, it's needed for us to figure out what's happening out there. Exactly. It's the way of the future, I think. We're going to be doing virtual stuff for a while, I believe. Yep. So I wanted to kind of dig into your background because I thought there were a few things that were pretty interesting. You say your most famous accomplishment is heading up the team that rebuilt the Baker Hughes rig count system. Um, yes. You hold a patent on that process. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was an interesting story. This, uh, If you think about when Baker Hughes switched to the new site, uh, God, look, good night. It was probably almost 20 years ago, but um, the president of the company had, I was working for Hughes Christensen at the time, and the president of Baker had gone to some conference and he got buttonholed by a president of a fairly large oil and gas company and said, you're lying. The numbers are wrong. You're misrepresenting what you're saying. And it, that didn't go over very well. I can imagine. So, <laughs> so I was sitting in my boss's office and he came storming in and uh, he was yelling and screaming at my boss. And they, he said, we've got to do something about this. Take care of this now. And they both turned around and looked at me and said, OK, you're in charge. Fix it. And they both walked out at the time. It was from just around World War Two is when Baker Hughes or Baker or actually Hughes Christensen was uh, counting the rigs, and it was done on a very informal basis. They, a, a bit salesman or a bit runner would run out to a rig. He would mark down on a little piece of paper. I was on H&P 127 in Brazoria County, Texas, and that was about all they knew. And they would come back and compile all that and once a week publish it. Well, rigs, rigs move, things happen, things go up and down. Uh, over the years, they had to define what a the rig count really was, and it's quite different than most people think. The Baker Hughes rig count is the active operating rigs that are actively drilling. They're not doing work over work. They're not doing completion work. They're not stacked but getting paid. So a lot of the different rig count numbers that you see will vary for the Baker number simply because they're counting different things. Well, sure. Baker said yeah. it, it's not active unless it's producing uh, revenue for service companies and various things and opportunities to make more whole. So we decided we needed to look at how that account was being taken. And we made a decision to go from a, a counting system to an accounting system, the debits and the credits. Yeah. Uh, so if, if, if a salesman were assigned a particular group of rigs in his, his sales area, he had to know where all those rigs were. And if it moved out, we had to figure out where it was moving out to. So it, it debited his account and credited another salesman's account. So by following that rig, we were able to better uh, justify where all those rigs were. It was a very interesting process. And I came up with the idea. I said, wouldn't it be cool instead of having columns and rows, let's put it on a GIS type map. And it, that was when the GIS systems were just starting to come out so that we could actually follow where those rigs were moving from one area to the other from one week to another. But it was a it was it was a really fun project, and I, I'm kind of proud of our team because we actually came in under budget and under time and presented a fairly uh, important piece of information. I think we did some tracking on it. It, it is the it, at the time for 
probably 10 years at least it probably still is one of the most widely used websites uh in the oil and gas industry on a daily basis yeah for sure i mean it's always being quoted um you know yeah. when you're looking at statistics and stuff Absolutely. Um, well yeah that was quite a project and come in under time and under budget that's rare <laughs> Yeah, I, of course, it was good that I didn't have a budget to start with that well, I could I could fine tune it as I went along until I said, yeah, here's the number. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> and, good. And made sure that my number was less than the number I turned in. <laughs> that's a good project manager. Yeah, it's always good when you've got control of that. So. Yes. Um, also, what I find interesting about your background is how you actually got into the oil and gas industry. You didn't study to get into the oil and gas industry, but you um, but you got into it, and you have a pretty long history in there. Tell me a little bit about how you got into it. Yeah, I, I have an undergrad degree in business, and and uh, I actually started to work first right out of college. I worked for a bank. Uh, I discovered I didn't like working in a bank, and uh, a, a friend of mine, you know, uh, well, actually my roommate at the time, his dad was a geologist, and he says, oh, I can get you a job as a mudlogger, and I said, great, get me a job as a mudlogger. What's a mudlogger? <laughs> so I started working for the original mudlogging company that Schlumberger had. It was called The Analyst, and uh, went to work for them, ended up going, uh, spending about a year in Singapore working in Southeast Asia, came back, moved up in the company, and uh, uh, have, have bounced around since then. So my background has always been mudlogging. I have, a, a, I have an MBA uh, and I'm one of the few people, I guess, in the industry that is not a geologist, not an engineer, but at any one given point in time when I was heading up the bud logging operation for Baker or the bud logging operation for Halliburton, I probably had a thousand geologists working for me. So I don't know that there's many asset managers out there that can say the same. Uh, so it, yeah. it has been a very interesting career. No, I, I, it yeah, and I also hold several patents on some downhole tool technology, some managed pressure drilling technology. Uh, again, it's 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 being in the right place at the right time, having some very good engineers working for me. But uh, uh, also, I actually contributed quite a bit to several of those patents. Uh, one of them, I happen to be in the room, and they had to put my name on the on the patent. I'll I'll fess up to that one. <laughs> But so but it's good to be in the room, several, right? <laughs> yeah, but several several of the others, I had direct input as to uh, uh, what what the technology was doing and what ne what it needed to be done. So it, it, it's been fun. Good. SPE is proud to co-sponsor the Energy and Data webinar series. Engage and connect with the energy and data community from anywhere in the world by participating in our monthly webinars. On the 30th of July at 8 a.m. Central Time, tune in with Sashi Gunturu and learn about subsurface data engineering. Join us for this great learning experience by visiting energyanddata.org to register now. The Energy and Data webinars are powered by AAPG, SEG, and SPE. Before we delve into technology more, talking about the opportunities in the oil and gas field, this is a question SPE gets a lot from our student members and our recent graduates. Why should they go into the oil and gas business? You know, especially right now with the downturns, um, it's a very cyclical in, uh, industry. And a lot of people who haven't been in it as long as you have or maybe possibly I have, um, they don't see the ups and downs. So what kind of advice would you get them about pursuing a career in the industry? 
Well, I, I think if, if the students that have come out do realize that it is a very cyclical industry, I mean, you're, you're living on top of the mountain one, one week and you're living under the bridge another week, and, and it's going to be like that. I don't think there's, unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be a lot of changes in that. But my advice would be it's, it's probably, and I, I have a lot of friends that are in aerospace and medicine and a lot of other areas, but there's no other industry that I've ever seen that a young grad can come out go to work for a company, be it an oil and gas, an operator or an off-field service company, and be given a, pretty much a green light with large budgets to, to bake it or break it. And, and, and you, won't, you won't get fired if you fail um, yeah. until you get higher up at the organization because you're not supposed <laughs> to fail at that point in time. But as a young engineer, you, you are able to do a lot of things that a lot of other engineer grads cannot do simply because of the fact that that's that's how the oil field works go out there and try make 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 things happen and even if the project's a failure technically sometimes a lot of information is learned from those failures that are as valuable to the company as, as anything else right and it could lead to a breakthrough you know uh, oh, major breakthrough technology and the way we do things correct absolutely absolutely uh, some of the best some of the best uh, things that i've seen happen is because some bright guy's idea didn't work and we figured out how to, how to make that better. Completely yeah. different from what that original concept was. Right. And it's all the point in the road that we get to, right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's get to our main topic at hand. Uh, so we reached out to you um, for this podcast about an article you wrote in the May issue of the Journal of Petroleum Technology. Um, you talked about oil field life after the COVID-19 crash. You started your article by saying, this crash reminds me of the REM song, the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Actually, that could be kind of scary, but yep. <laughs> tell us why you feel fine about that. Well, I wrote the article basically because about that time when the entire world was crashing, we didn't know about the COVID-19, the full measure of it. It absolutely scared every government globally. Everything was, it was like, get out on the highways of Houston and you could drive 90 miles an hour and never see anybody for 15 minutes. And that's just unheard of. At the same time, the earnings calls for the, the Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker, Weatherford were all coming out. They were all preaching doom and gloom. They said they were cutting. Each company basically said we're going to cut a billion dollars out of our spend. Having been in the technical groups of, of a lot of those companies, I knew what that meant. They were basically completely shutting technology down. That meant they were they were they were laying off all their technologists, their their engineers, their R and D people. They were shuttering buildings. They were they were completely slashing and burning budgets for any uh, projects in the pipeline now or any future. Uh, pipeline. So <clears throat> when I said the end of the world as we know it, yeah, that was that's what was happening. I put the caveat in there is I feel fine for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's a lot of great technology that has been developed probably in the last three years that are being completely underutilized uh, in the industry. Either the sales groups have not done a very good job of presenting that information to the operators and their need, or the operators on the other side have been had this concept of the factory drilling, let's just punch as many wells as fast as we can. Uh, I actually got in trouble at a SPE talk uh, a couple of years ago when I said, I am so glad to see that the drillers are starting to use technology, but a Xerox machine is the wrong kind of technology to be using. <laughs> 
I got a lot of nasty looks at that conference, but but I I stand by it, and I think it was true. They were trying to do too many things too quickly, trying to cut cut corners on everything they could, and just not using some of the new technology that could help them find more oil and gas. So I, why I say it's a it's a good thing is that maybe some of the uh, the pullback will be. We have limited budgets. The, 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 the cost of production has not changed. Uh, uh, our economics have changed. We, we are no longer operating at $80 a barrel oil. We're down to doing evaluations on $25 to $30 a barrel oil. So when we drill a well, we better make sure that we have some good ways of making sure that we have some hydrocarbon down there that we can produce. So some of this new technology both in, in downhole sensors, some of the surface measurements that are being taken on geochemistry today on cuttings and, and that type of thing, uh, the, the gas chromatography and the various things that can be found with some of the new technology that's out is going to be a tremendous boon uh, going forward uh, for the next several years and potentially help the industry find some more hydrocarbons. So that's why I kind of feel good about it. Yeah, yeah. No, it, you're right about the technology. And I think we're going to be looking more towards technology to create efficiencies in the field. Uh, well, absolutely. And, and, and I, I've always thought that, uh, God, this, this, this is going to sound horrible because I've made my living doing it. But uh, most of the companies were overinflated to the number of employees they had. And, and thinking that the only way that they could get productivity out of employees is if you went into the office at six in the morning and left at five in the afternoon and had to be there face to face with everybody. I think if anything, this, this, this COVID uh, pandemic has taught us, just as you and I are doing right now, we can do a lot of things in remote locations, carry on meetings, um, uh, be just as effective. We have to. It's a, it's a new way of a new way of working, a new way of learning. But I think the oil and gas industry is probably one of the last that have done this. Uh, you look at medical. You look at you know if you if you're a, in the medical industry, if you're a uh, uh, an X-ray specialist, you you never go into the office. You sit at home and look at your computer and and do do your analysis. Petrophysicists and geophysicists could be doing the same thing in in their own home, looking at the logs, looking at the data that's coming across, and making just as many good good decisions as possible. So I think we're seeing some big changes that are good. The remote operations, uh, I've been involved in remote operations for many, many years, has never been taken very seriously, but all of a sudden it's come to the forefront. And, and the companies that are doing that right are being very successful at it and, and their productivity or their, their customers' productivity is going way up on that. So we're, we're seeing some great things happening in that respect. So yeah, the, the digitalization is particularly the way we work is, is, is going to be changing and be a big impact on, on the future for us. Yeah. And especially if you compare it to mm. other downturns, um, you know, 2015, 2016, we cut a lot of people and we never really got back up to that point. We were before that. So I think, you know, being lean and, and working um, with uh, more production and less employees is kind of what we're looking at moving forward. Now, how do you compare this downturn with some of the others? I've heard you compare it to the 1983 downturn before. Yeah, that was more on the economic side. Uh, if you look at the 82-83 crash, uh, which was pretty dramatic at the time, that's when, you know, 
Prior to that, we were running almost 4,000 rigs in the U.S., whereas this time we were running just around 2,000. So that proved that with half the rigs, we could still outproduce anything we ever did historically, which, which is a good thing, I guess. But economically, it's like it's a lesson that we keep hitting ourselves in the head with a hammer and we don't seem to learn it. Uh, the, 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 the point I brought up in several other conversations I've had on the 82, 83 crash was how the industry had been financed uh, by the investment bankers and the bankers. And yet at the same time, um, they, they screwed that one up. They screwed this one up as bad as they did that last one. Uh, and, and what I'm saying is the investment community doesn't, they're not experts in oil and gas. They rely on us as being experts. We, we think we have the next best thing, and very often that next best thing really isn't any better than the last best next thing. And, and uh, our, our, our uh, find rate is not much better than it was 50 years ago. Uh, we still drill, you know, for, for every exploration well that's drilled, only one out of 10 is, is a find. We still screw up nine of them. Uh, we, we have the right technology very often. We're not using it properly uh, in, in that find. But we still, there's people with a lot of money that think that, you know, they, they believe us when we say we're going to make millionaires of them overnight. Just give, just give me, just give me $10 million and I'll drill that well and it'll, and, and you're going to get a hundred million back. There's a lot of gullible people out there. I related it back to a book that was written back in the eighties called Funny Money about a little bitty neighborhood bank in Oklahoma City called Penn Square Bank. Uh, when I say little bitty bank, it's the kind of bank you go to, to, I need a new roof on the house or I want to buy a car. That was the traditional lo loaning, lending that they would practice. And one of their VPs came up with the idea of, of, hey, we're in the oil and gas country. Let me start making some oil and gas loans. Well, at the same time, McKinsey and Company uh, was, was uh, consulting with Chase and um, Oh, I can't remember the other bank. It, at the time, the other bank was the seventh largest bank in the country. They said, you need to get in oil and gas. They turned to Penn Square because this guy had written some articles and had given some talk, uh, excuse me, given some talks. And they were literally, Penn Square was writing loans on a guy sitting in a broom closet with a board on his lap, signing away loans and immediately turning around and selling them to Chase and, 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 uh, Continental Illinois. Well, they were all bad loans. The, the whole thing collapsed around. Continental Illinois actually went out of business, the seventh largest bank in the country. It nearly dragged Chase down into bankruptcy. Uh, so we're seeing that today where I think I read an article from, uh, it was published last year, that there were only six operators in a positive cash flow situation in the Permian. Uh, that's scary when that you consider there, there were probably over 3,000 operators in the Permian Basin. The rest of them were either uh, losing money or trying to beg for more money. And, and, and the, the only thing that kept production up in the Permian was the fact that they were drilling well so fast that, it, that the, the, the decline rate was, was almost outpacing the, the drilling rate. So that was that was a very bad situation. And then consider that the economics, you know, the the operators are constantly pounding the service companies over the head to reduce their cost. And yet the economics were bad from the start when they were they were leasing properties in the Permian for anywhere from 60 to 90 thousand dollars per acre. 
Whereas if you drill a conventional well in South Texas or South Louisiana or Mississippi, you're looking at $200 an acre. That's, yeah. that's, that's where the money was going. So it, it's, right. it, 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 it was a, it was a bad situation from the start that it, it just ended up, we ended up burning ourselves out. So right. we have, we have to do a better job of that in the future. Cause right now I can promise you, you're not, you cannot raise a single dollar to drill an oil or gas well pretty much anywhere right now. No, not right now. You've got to no. go with what you have for the yep. time being. Much of the work of the Society of Petroleum Engineers is accomplished by members. Become a volunteer and use your knowledge and experience to influence SPE programs and activities. As a volunteer, you can enhance your leadership skills while meeting and working with other SPE members from across the globe. There are many opportunities to get involved, regardless of your experience, location, or experience level. To learn more about the League of Volunteers, visit spe.org volunteer. So if we talk about the technology again, uh, you had mentioned that technology probably, the development of technology is probably halted at the moment, and then it'd probably take a few years to get it back up and running. Do you think we could do more with less? Yeah, I think I think the secret is, and, and it's it's not not it's not a big secret. It's something that we've we've seen over the decades in the oil and gas industry. The real technology developments haven't come from the very big major companies uh the big major companies sell the big the technology what ends up happening is a small uh niche company a boutique company a a, a, a brilliant guy with a great idea develops something and then he sells that technology to the major company um so all of, all of the real big developments over the years have come from that and and i see some very very good small boutique companies like that uh, right now uh one one that comes to mind is is and it goes back to the data center concept and artificial intelligence and it's it's a little company called Corva. Corva started up a couple of years ago with the concept of trying to do what Baker, Schlumberger, and Halliburton were doing with their data centers. But they looked at it and said, we are getting tremendous amounts of data coming across every day. Let's use some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning that these guys had learned from other industries, hired the right expertise a small group of how do we use this in oil and gas and built some very good artificial intelligence machines, taking in the data that, that there that was available and turning it into to proper answers. So to take that workload off of the engineer, let the engineer do the thinking and not the monitoring. And so you see little boutique companies like that, um, that have developed, you know, things like the top drive. Uh, when I started in the industry, all of the drilling was done with rotary systems rotary tables well the top drive came along and everybody said oh no I, i'm not, well, not going to put that on my rig it costs too much money well i you're going to be hard pressed to find a drilling rig today that doesn't have a top drive the same thing with rotary steerables uh, everybody said we've been drilling rotor uh, directional wells for the last 200 years using a, a single shot survey and, and, a, and a and a mud motor well again rotary steerables came along and and it has tremendously boost lwd mwd all of those things have been developed and a lot of them were 
from from smaller companies that were bought up by the major OFS companies to sell back to the industry. So that's where I see that's where I see the future. The the small real smart people coming together, putting their ideas and developing it out. I, I think where the the big the Halliburtons, the Slumberjays, the Bakers uh, messed that whole uh, concept up it was from the direction of the operators when the operator said. Hey, let's see if we can bundle all of these things together, give you a red rig, a blue rig, a light blue rig, so that we'll get a better price. Well, it, what ends up happening is they're buying the technology, for example, the rotary steerable system, and, and forcing the off-field service company to throw in things like mud logging for free. Well, I guarantee you nothing's for free. No. Either, either, either they're going to increase the price of the rotary steerable system or the ones that they need are – it will be for free, but that means that there's no investment in, in the mudlogging group, that they're not training their people properly. You're not going to get the highest quality service, whereas the independent mudlogging companies are going to come in that can't bundle because they don't have MWD, LWD, or rotary steerables, but end up giving you a better job and, and a better bang for the buck. So I, I think there needs to be a, a, another shift back into let's get away from this bundling prospect put the right service company for the right prospect or project together and then evaluate it as we go along. Not necessarily, you know, you've got a 10 year contract with everything and, and just, and that never works. It, it never really right. works. Yeah. Um, and, and plus you're seeing a lot of the um, large OFS companies merge together. So yeah. a lot of it out there, um, you know, you've got one or two to choose from. And these smaller companies, like you said, maybe they're really good at, at, at one little niche thing and they can get in and make a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, you, you, yeah, because what ends up happening is, uh, I going back to the mudlogging because I know that the best, but there are measurements of the rocks that only a mudlogger can give you that even the, the best LWD or wireline is, if you think about it, it's an indirect measurement. It's sending a, some sort of electromagnetic wave out or recording the electronics back of, of what's happening down hole. Whereas the mud logger actually touches the rock, sees the rocks, tastes the rocks, analyzes the rocks. They're analyzing the gas that's coming out. It is the direct look at those rocks of what's happening down there. It's the only look of the rocks. Because uh, if you face it, the, we don't core that many wells anymore, so you don't get the full core. Right. Sidewall, sidewall cores have their own problems. Cuttings have their own problems, but it's a lot cheaper. Uh, I used to, uh, when, I, when I go out and make, make presentations, say, hey, you're, you're, you're creating the cuttings for free. Why throw them away? Let's analyze them. So we're starting to see some of the new technology come out, scan electron microscopes, the, all the geochemistry uh, methodologies that are out there, the rock properties that we can actually measure from those cuttings that used to take months and, and weeks or months. Now it can be done at the well site real time. So there's a lot of really good information that can be available at a, at a, a cheaper price than LWD or wireline, a little bit more than traditional mud logging, but give you the right answers. Because after all, the hydrocarbons are in the rocks. We don't just happenstance fall upon them. So we need right. to know where we are. Right. Yeah, it's not the Beverly Hillbillies anymore. No. Where it just comes flowing out of the ground. <laughs> Shooting at some food and getting some crude, right? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of young people don't understand that reference. No. But. <laughs> no, <they don't. laughs> 
Are you considering becoming an SPE member? When you join SPE, you join a society of dedicated professionals just like you, working to address the technical challenges of the global oil and gas industry. SPE membership gives you the opportunity to make local and global connections and build a network of influential technical leaders from every discipline. Learn more at spe.org slash join. Let's get your crystal ball out. Sure. What what do you see happening over the next, I don't know, 18 months or so, um, you know, through production and through cutbacks? Yeah, I, I think what, you know, we're in a pretty dodgy situation right now. We we don't know what the demand is going to be. We 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 saw the demand go through the floor when historically the the futures market went to what fourteen dollars, uh, yeah. negative negative fourteen dollars, yeah. which is which is stupid, but uh, it's pure speculation and, and scare. But I, I think uh, we're we're at a base now of about thirty five to forty. It'll fluctuate like that. I don't see it going up much faster. I think. Uh, the, the the demand for oil is is down quite a bit because of the continued lockdown that we're seeing globally. Uh, we're not we're not moving in air, airlines are 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 suffering horribly, so we're not flying anywhere. Uh, we're seeing a few more cars on the highways and in roads, but not anywhere near they were. So the demand for the the liquids are not there. Um, we are seeing some movement in the gas, and I think that natural gas is gonna uh, is gonna be a little bit stronger. Um, uh, I, I'm we're doing I'm doing some work with with a with a group. We're trying to raise some funds for some drilling, and we're seeing that nobody will even look at us with oil prospects. All they want to talk about is gas. So that tells me the money is is right now looking at the gas side of it, uh, because I think this winter we're going to see uh, a pretty good demand rise up for for our natural gas. Um, but my do you, think that's be- do you think that's because of the cost, um, or why do you think that? Yeah, yeah, part of it. I, I just think it's the demand. The, the, oh, the liquid, the liquid, yeah, the liquids are not there, and and uh, and and what we're seeing is once the Permian started shutting down, all the associated gas with that, they were either flaring it or trying to, they were paying people to take it away. Some of that payment was to for companies to take it away and burn it off at a at a major site, or to pay just to fill in the pipelines. So I think with that production in the Permian dropping off, all of a sudden. The gas pipelines are going to start uh, pulling on vacuum, and, and they've got to re- replace it because you know we're, we're getting off of coal, and 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 a lot of the power plants now have have moved back to to gas, and 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 we know as much as we'd like to see renewable energy work, it's just not there yet. Um, uh, the, the, it has its own problems, and the only way it can stay alive is through government subsidies. Uh, the the future the future may be there, but not yet. But that right now we're stuck with with gas. The good thing about the gas is it's it's probably the cleanest burning hydrocarbon that's out there. Uh, it's 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 cheap. It's reliable, and we have a lot of it. Uh, unfortunately, I've I've also discussed the the lack, the complete lack of energy policy in the United States. If we really had a true energy policy, uh, that doesn't mean that we would nationalize the oil and gas companies. It would mean that we would we would force them into a situation where we have certain goals, then goals are rewarded or, or penalized based on, on those goals. And if the government were serious about it, we would give a tax break to everybody to convert their, their automobile from gasoline to natural gas. Uh, it's about a $1,200 conversion. Uh, the, it, it's, it's, it's a lot cleaner 
the, the natural gas is a lot cleaner burning. It's not quite as efficient, but tremendous opportunity there for us to, to have a true energy policy. That's something I'd love to see, but we yeah. don't have that. But right. I, I, but I think the future does. It's not it's not a very bright future. I don't see any big expansion. I don't see any big movement. Uh, I think you're going to see some consolidations, uh, both in the operator side that we're already starting to see, and uh, and particularly in the oil field service company side. There's there's just there's 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 too many service companies doing the same thing. We're going to see a reduction in the number of drilling contractors, and we're going to see a, a dramatic reduction in the number of, of operators that are out there. So uh, it's it's a pretty bleak future as far as uh, anybody trying to get a job in the next year or two, um, other than them creating their own job by starting their own company, being one of those niche companies that yeah. they can do something a little bit unique and, and, and different. Being an innovator of some sort, you know, coming uh, up uh, with, that was one thing, um, you know, we had a um, an SPE live event talking to, um, department heads of petroleum engineering, and they said the one qualification they're looking for are problem solvers. Yeah. So uh, that's well, absolutely, and it can be anywhere in the industry. J just someone with a bright idea that realize they can't boil the ocean, but they sure can boil a, a coffee cup at a time. Uh, to so solve the problem, uh, come up with some unique ideas. Realize you're gonna you're gonna have some failures in there, and and uh, and and but but be innovative and and be brave because I guess what you know they they say when you're at the bottom of the barrel you you don't have much to be brave about you just jump in and do what you got to do to get out you know so it, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we're at that stage right now but the, I I see some I see some good things happening uh, I, I I stay on LinkedIn quite a bit and I see. I see a lot of colleagues that are starting to get some jobs. They, you know, the, the, as the companies are reopening, they won't need as many, but they definitely need some good folks that 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 are that are good technologists that that understand. I think uh, I think the the a lot of folks that have never been in sales but are a technical side. I think uh, there's a good opportunity for some quality salesmen to be out there to start pushing that current technology that's available that is not very well understood and to make the case for that technology. So I, I think we need to see a different breed of salesmen coming in that can really do the industry some good by, by utilizing the right technology at the right time in the right place. Yep. Solving problems. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for your time today and giving us a little bit of insight on um, your thoughts and your crystal ball. <laughs> well, it, it, it was it's a pleasure. I, I enjoy doing this. I, if nothing else, having been in the industry for over 40 years, nobody can say that I don't know what I'm talking about. They may say I'm, I'm foolish, but uh, I've been there. I've been there and I've done most of it. When people come up to me with ideas and they say, you don't know what you're talking about, I said, no. I kind of know what I'm talking about. I've been there, done that, and got a bunch of those T-shirts. But go ahead and try. You, you might <laughs> succeed this time. Yeah, you never know. Never <laughs> know right. what's going to happen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Again, thank you so much for your time. And you can read Duncan's full article on spe.org slash JPT and search the May issue. Let's keep the conversation going. Use the hashtag SPE podcast on all your social media channels to reach out and leave us comments and reviews. We'd love hearing from you. You can find SPE podcast 
wherever you get your podcasts, search SPE Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and tune in. We're also online at spe.org slash podcasts. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Duncan Blue. I'm Paige McCowan. Thanks for listening.